heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And then look with me at chapter 2, verses 7 through 9. And then the Lord formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put man whom he formed. And out of the ground the Lord made up to sp- made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the, to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In those verses, we see that God created people in his own image. So this means that, in a sense, God made us to be like him. You even see some of those elements where we, we mirror his sovereignty over creation and having dominion over things. So this means that God has made us to reflect his character, to, to rule over creation as his stewards, and to have a relationship with him, just as he has eternally had a relationship, a loving relationship within himself. God has made us to know him and to reflect him and to love him. And, and Adam and Eve's relationship with God was not like an abstract concept that they, they kind of vaguely understood or hoped influenced their life. Rather, it was, it was a deep and abiding relationship with, with innumerable blessings and particular boundaries. So in Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17, you find, And the Lord God commanded them, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. What do you see in those verses? Genesis 2, 16, 17. What do you guys see there? Yeah, he's given them everything, and then he's given them a boundary, right? Except for one. Yeah. What else do you guys see? Authority. How so, Chris? Mm. The Lord God commanded. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Good reminder of God's authority. So we notice that the, the freedom that God gives Adam and Eve, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Look at, look at this boundless blessing that I've given you. Well, not completely boundless. There are particular boundaries that he's also given. Did you, so first we have, did you, did you see that? It, it's all yours. I made it for you. Enjoy it. Feast upon it. Eat from these trees, and, and with every bite, remember that I gave it to you to enjoy it. So, so God made the world and made it, for, uh, made it for us to delight in, and that gives God glory. So enjoyment, however, has to be guarded by God's truth. In, in light of this, our second observation should be that, that we have this restriction, this, this boundary. God gave a command and a consequence in verse 17. So, uh, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God, God is holy. As we saw last week in the, in the Sunday night devotion, he is holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So if man were to rebel against him, he's telling them from the beginning, he would judge them. Man is created to know God, to enjoy God forever, to worship him. And by doing these things, man gives God glory. But, okay, let's pick up a little speed. So Genesis 2, 25 tells us, 
and the man and woman uh, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, can you imagine that? So the the, the two of them they they live in a world of perfection, w- with no fear, no jealousy, no no haunting memories, no calloused hearts, no regret, no blame, no shame. They knew nothing but life and love and joy and freedom and perfect holiness. That's what we were created to know. And I think as we think about the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's, it's important for us to, to picture the, the perfection of God and the perfection of the, the place in which he intended uh, for us to begin our world with him. But then we're going to see that things turn for the worse. That's not how they remain. Let's look at Genesis 3, 1 through 6. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast in the field that the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Suddenly a, a new character arrives on the scene. He's a liar a tempter, a a deceiver. The Bible later tells us that his name is Satan. And what is Satan doing here? Well, he tempts Eve. He he tells her, God's holding out on you. You you want real freedom? Like complete, absolute, God-like freedom? Real happiness? Real excitement? Well, then trust me. Take a a bite. God's way is not best. Things will be better if you just indulge your desires. That ought to sound familiar, because that's still his refrain. It's the same old song. Eve listened, and so did Adam, and they ate what God told them not to. They, they rejected God. They rebelled against the Lord of glory and followed their own way. And what happened? Did things get better, like the deceiver told them they would? No, not at all. In fact, just like God promised... They died. They died spiritually, and eventually they would die physically. Sin entered in, and every aspect of their world was crushed. Look at verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they, were, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. The, their whole world has shattered from a place where they are in perfect harmony with the Lord with no shame, now to a place where even their very bodies are shameful to them. Sin destroyed their understanding of who they were. Once they were free, and now they're filled with shame and guilt. So what do they do? Well, they they try to patch together some fig leaves, right, to try to, to, anything they can do to, to cover up themselves, to cover up their pain. And again, that should sound familiar. We, we still do that to this day, constantly trying to cover up ourselves and our sin and our shame. Keeping going in verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. 
And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called to man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? I mean, can you imagine that that Adam and Eve, they, they had been walking with God regularly in the cool of the day. Like, I mean, what an incredible quiet time, right? The, 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 the perfect union with God, and it's no longer. Now, at that same time, they hide themselves out of fear. And what does God do? What does he say? Well, he gives us the first question of the, of the Bible. And again, not because he's, uh, he doesn't know. No, because he created the Socratic method. He, he knows exactly what he's doing. He, he's, he's wanting a confession from them. He wanted them to come and say, I did it. I sinned. I ate. I didn't, I didn't trust you. I, I didn't believe that, you, um, that your ways were right or that you were good. I, I sinned. Instead, they hid and they, they ran from God. And that's what we've been doing ever since. We're hiding. We make up excuses. We develop philosophies to try to explain things. We conjure up false religions. We we do whatever we must to explain away God and his boundaries. We hide. But God's presence remains the same. Where are you? In in part, that's one of the questions we're going to ask in evangelism. On behalf of the Lord, we come and ask people to be honest about where they are with God. We'll pick that up as we go out, as we go through the rest of the summer. Finally, notice that sin also destroys their relationship with one another. So verse 12, the man said, The woman whom you gave to me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. So what's happened to their perfect relationship with one another? Well, now it's filled with resentment and and bitterness. Adam blames Eve and God for his sin. This is what sinful man does. Sin hates to be in the light, and it will do whatever it can to keep from being exposed. Especially it's if we can just shift that blame off of us and throw it on to somebody else. So what should God have done right here and now in this story? From what we know, what we just talked about, about so many of his characteristics, about his sovereignty, his holiness, how he is perfect, how he is creator, how he is in control of all things, what should he have done? Well, well, maybe some of us would say he should have crushed them. He should have just started over from scratch. Right? He has the ability to do that. He could judge them and, and cast them out forever under his wrath in hell. That, that's what, that would be fair, right? I mean, they, they broke the one rule. Right? There was one rule. But instead, God promises here to crush another. God promised to judge another. God promised to pour out his wrath on another. Look at Genesis 3, 14 through 19. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. 
in these verses, God responds to man's rebellion by proclaiming a, a threefold curse. And if we continue, you see how it plays out not only for Satan, but the woman and for the man. So to Satan, uh, he's uh, on his belly. To the woman, there's pain in birth. To the man, there's pain in work. Thorns and thistles will come up from the ground. And to all humans, we will die. Notice, however, that God doesn't just curse them here. He also gives them a promise. A promise that will guide the course of history and the hope of the world. It's as if you're hearing the, the first note of the melodic line as it, as it traces through Scripture. We hear that first tone. Here's the promise. Here, here it dings for the first time. In you I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God gives a promise that a singular man will come. He will be bruised or wounded by the serpent. But then in the end, he will crush the serpent's head. God promises to send a deliverer. One who will stand up to this enemy and who will defeat him in the process. And while even in the process, he will be wounded. So... The, the big kind of theological uh, term for this is the, the proto-evangelium, the, the, the first gospel proclamation, the first time we hear the tones of what is to be um, the great thread throughout Scripture. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep us moving. So after this, God promised uh, them and gave them a picture to help them understand, um, to help them remember the promise. Look at 3, verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and Eve and for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. So what's God done? God has made them garments of skin. And, and how do you get garments of, of skin? Well, something else had to die. An innocent animal's blood is shed, and now God strips Adam and Eve of their fig leaves, their own attempt to cover themselves with self-righteousness, and instead he gives them the coverings that they feel that they need, that they actually do need at this moment. This is a picture of what God does for us, for those who trust in Christ. So then in 324, Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden. But, but a, and a cherubim, an angel with a flaming sword, is placed there to keep them from getting back in, from getting back to that tree of life. And the waiting begins. Now, I said we would spend a disproportionate amount of time in these first three chapters. And now we're going to hustle our way through the rest of Scripture. But we're, we're asking the, these questions. Who will the seed of the woman be? What will he look like? How will we recognize him? And, and that's what begins to unfold as we go through the Old Testament. We are given more and more information about who the seed of the woman will be. And about how we'll know to recognize him. Someone is coming, a deliverer is coming who will defeat Satan, clothe them, us with innocence, and restore us to God. But when will he come, and, and, and who will the innocent lamb be? Well, we're going to start to see points that point, uh, throughout, the, throughout the Old Testament that point to that. So you get this long list of genealogies, and among them you get a man named Noah, whose name means rest. And we begin to think, okay, is this the guy? Well, no, he's a picture of the guy, but he's, he's not yet the guy. Right? And then we're going to jump ahead and we're going to see that, uh, that Israel becomes a family, uh, that, that, those, that family through Abraham and Isaac, and then Israel are, are, are given promises 
Uh, and then they, they, they are sent off to Egypt during a famine. They're enslaved under a wicked Pharaoh. And then God delivers them through a man named Moses. And the question is, is Moses the guy? Is he the guy? He's not the guy. He's pointing to the guy, but he, he's not the guy. And in one of those final acts of deliverance uh, through Moses comes uh, when, when God called the nation to shed the blood of an innocent lamb and to smear it over the door frames as a testimony of their faith in God's promise to pass over them and not to judge them. And, and those who do so lived, and those who didn't, well, they lost their firstborn. All right, so we're getting more and more clarity on these themes of, of what, what are we to be looking for. So following this, God miraculously leads them through the Red Sea and on up to a place called Mount Sinai. There God gives them the law so people will know who he is and how he requires them to live. Because God knew that they couldn't keep his law perfectly. He provided a, a sacrificial system within that law by which a priest offered up an innocent lamb as an act of faith that God would pass over their sins. And the New Testament will later in Hebrews 9 and 10 explain that those offerings were mere shadows pointing toward uh, uh, tuning us in to the great sacrifice that is to come. It was intended to, to stir up anticipation Year after year, animal after animal, blood after blood, offerings and prayers all pointing towards the one who is to come. And along the way, Israel often rebelled and, and God dealt with them according to their sins, but he, but he never forgot or forsook them. Instead, he made them more and more promises and provided more and more mercy to them, pointing to the one who, would, who is to come. And we see that through, throughout the lineage of the kings, particularly as we recognize that God promises to David's line that there will be a king who sits on his throne forever, whose, whose kingdom will never end. And God gives promises, like in Isaiah 7, 14, that the one who's coming will be born of a virgin, or in Micah 5, 2, that he'll be born in Bethlehem, or in Isaiah 35, that he will do miracles, and most importantly, in, in, in passages like Isaiah 52 through 50, uh, 52, 12 through 53, 12, where we, we recognize that he will be a suffering servant, that he will be wounded for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, that by his stripes, people will be healed. God, God gave all of these things to stir up faith in his people so they would trust him to bring the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head. So, in a sense, we can see kind of the, the framework of the whole Old Testament is clarifying more and more and more and building up more and more anticipation through, through hard uh, centuries pointing towards the Savior. And we're still asking at the end of it, where is our Savior? Where is the one to be born of a woman? Where is the one born of Abraham, born of David, who, the high priest, the final lamb? Where, where is he? And finally... When the fullness of time had come, God gave his son to be born of the Virgin Mary in the city of Bethlehem. The thousands of years had passed, and, and those promises had, had echoed from that fateful day all the way back in the Garden of Eden, and finally they're being fulfilled. Jesus came. He lived a perfect life. He performed mighty miracles. He proclaimed God's kingdom and hope for those who would repent and believe in him. But rather... 
then embraced Jesus as Lord and Savior, the righteous leaders of the day ordered that he be put to death. And he was. Jesus, the sinless Son of God, was forsaken by the ones, the very ones he came to save. He was betrayed, arrested, mocked, beaten, and he was crucified. And at that moment, all of history comes into focus. So years earlier, in a garden, humanity had fallen because they forsook God to taste of a tree. And now, after many painful days under sin's reign, the same God was forsaken again, but this time for, his, for their sake. Jesus was nailed to a tree to receive the curse and the shame and the judgment that we sinful humans deserved. Do you remember when, when God cursed the ground, right, uh, after Adam's fall? Do you remember what was, he said to come up from the ground? Thorns and thistles. And, and on the cross that day, Jesus is not wearing a crown of gold and rubies. He's wearing a crown of the very curse on his head. God's wrath and fury for sin were, were poured out on the sinless son of God. And before he died, he, he cried out, it is finished. And, and it was. He, he had come uh, to die for sinners and to satisfy God's wrath. And it was finished. And then we remember what happened after Jesus died. The curtain in the temple was torn in two. That's in, in Matthew 27, verse 51. And that was the curtain that was created, remember, to keep sinful man from approaching a holy God in the temple. And, and do you remember what was embroidered on the outside of that curtain? It was cherubim. Right? Exodus 26, 31 tells us there were cherubim there. And so, it's again, it's this picture of Adam and Eve have been, have been pushed out of Eden, out of the very presence of God. And what guards them from coming in? It's a cherubim. And then God pictures it in his temple that he... He says, this is the space where I dwell in my holiness, and you're not allowed in here. And what reminds them that they're not allowed to pass the curtain are cherubim. And what happens when Christ dies? That curtain is torn in two. Torn in two. It goes all the way back to the very beginning. Through Christ's death, we now have access into the place where God is. Through his death, the curtain is torn the sword is removed, and we, can, and we can know our creator again. So after Jesus died, they placed him in a grave, and for three days he laid dead. Until that fateful morning when God rolled back the stone, and the world saw that Jesus had risen from the dead. He is alive. The Son of God defeated sin, Satan, and death. And after his resurrection, he appeared for 40 days to many and told his disciples that he was going away. And while he was gone, he left them with that task that we started with this morning from Matthew 28, 18 to 20, to make disciples of all nations. And, and we see that reaffirmed in places like Acts 1.8. And we see it play out as the, as the early disciples begin to take the gospel uh, from one place to the next, from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And even as they instruct one another in how to do that, in, in letters and, in, uh, and in, in the ways that they gather together around the, the teaching of the apostles and breaking of bread. And so they, they even tell one another, 
that they're to continue this uh, from one generation to the next. So in 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, Paul instructs Timothy to, to carry this on, to take what he has heard and to give it to others, to faithful men who will be able to pass it on to others, who will be able to pass it on to others, who will be able to pass it on to others. And by God's great grace and mercy and sovereign control, that has what has happened for the last 2,000 years. And here we sit, um, in some ways, at the ends of the earth, in comparison to where that original commission was given, we, we find ourselves here the great beneficiaries of so many faithful brothers and sisters in Christ who have done exactly what we now are commissioned to do, to share the gospel and to make disciples so that the next generation will hear and the next generation will hear and the next generation will hear until we can look forward toward that great promise that we see in Revelation that Christ will return, that he will make all things new, that he will return us back to what we had seen in Eden, back to the new heavens and the new earth with a new tree of life and a new river of life and no thorns on the shore and no crying in the garden. And once again, we will be face to face with our creator. So take just a minute in your group, we just did a, a huge flyover of, of all the scripture. I want you to take just a second uh, with the person next to you and just, and just ask and answer the question, uh, how does an overview of the Bible inform and encourage our evangelism? What do you guys think? Tell, you, tell the person next to you. How does the overview of the whole Bible inform and encourage our evangelism? Three quick reminders I want us to have as we go forward in this class. The first is that we remember that the purpose of history is to glorify God. So the purpose of creation, the purpose of, of your life is to glorify God. And so we want to remember that as we think about evangelism. What is the purpose of evangelism? The purpose of evangelism is to glorify God. Because we recognize that there are people in this world who are not glorifying God. We want to, to lead them to do that. But even in evangelism, when we don't see conversion, we, we recognize that even the proclamation of the good news, the faithful telling of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is to glorify God. 
Second, I want you to remember as we've seen kind of this whole overview of the Bible is that God has been telling us the good news for uh, millennia. For thousands of years, God has been telling us what is the good news of the gospel that he has been, he has been putting out in front of us that, that he desires uh, to seek and to save those who are lost. And, and, and we can trust that as, as he delights in saving sinners, we can, we can find a great delight in sharing the gospel. Find great delight because God is the evangelist. And, and thirdly, we have been entrusted with the honor and responsibility of proclaiming the gospel. That these were not uh, just tasks given to our forebears, but they are tasks that we carry on today. And then we need to feel that way and feel the joy of sharing the gospel. Evangelism is not an elective, right? It's not something we can say, well, I don't have that gift. I don't have the gift of evangelism. We can recognize that it is a gift and that some have it. But it also can't mean that we can neglect the responsibility. It's an honor to get to share the gospel. And we should, we should seek to do it. We are in a privileged position to introduce people to the King of Kings. And so how, how are we going to grow in that this summer? Well, a couple things we, we want to encourage you with. Uh, first, you'll notice on your homework, we, we're going to encourage you this summer to get in the habit of praying for Bob. Pray for Bob every day. Pray for Bob every day. Now, now who is Bob? Well, Bob is a simple acronym um, that has helped me uh, for years and years uh, to even in the moment to, to pray for my own evangelism. So first, pray for a burden. Pray for a burden for the lost. So if you're filling in your notes there, the first B is burden. Um, pray that you would have God's heart for the lost. That you would see people as, um, as God sees them, as image bearers, as those who are designed to be in a relationship with him, those who are out of relationship with him, who are in rebellion to him, and who, who need um, his, his grace to be saved from his wrath. And so have that, that, pray for God to give you that burden. Second, pray for opportunities with the lost. So burden for the lost and opportunities with the lost. Ask God uh, to create them and then to give you eyes to see them. Uh, often, uh, I think we, we miss m- many of the opportunities that God gives us day in and day out because we, we, we don't have, even have eyes to see them. And so ask God to give you those eyes to see the opportunities that he's providing. And thirdly, then pray that the Lord would give you boldness to take the gospel to them. I think often we, the few opportunities that we do see, then we, we miss those opportunities because we're not bold. And that's actually a, a very biblical prayer. In Acts chapter 4, when the, when the apostles are, are, are threatened uh, by, by the chief priests uh, to, to stop preaching the gospel, they, they pray to God, God, you see the threats in this city, you see what's against us, and they don't ask God to remove those threats. They ask God to give them boldness in the midst of those threats to proclaim the gospel as they ought. So our first encouragement to you, first homework, is to take uh, to begin the discipline of each day, each morning, uh, praying for Bob. Asking, and that's, that's a three-sentence prayer. Right? And just add that into your rhythms. And, and then begin to look for God to answer that prayer. 
and, and, and come here ready to share in ways that God has answered that prayer. The second is that we're going to encourage you to memorize scripture with us this summer. So we believe that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so we can, we're going to give you lots of tools. We're going to talk about lots of different uh, structures that you might use to, sh to share the gospel. But at the end of the day, as you are talking with someone, um, it's not just your words that have effect. We know that most importantly, it's God's word that has effect. And so we would want you to be able to articulate the good news of God's gospel with God's words. And so what we've got for you here, each of you uh, coming in should have gotten a cardstock, is uh, here we have um, oddly numbered, but I apologize for that, um, a set, two sets of verses. So you'll see the, the uh, 101 verses on one side and the 201 verses on the other side. So if you have either never memorized scripture in relation to evangelism, or you know that you've got a really limited bandwidth this summer to try to grow, uh, to memorize scripture, we would encourage you to make sure that by the end of the summer you have all of the 101 scriptures memorized. And so these are, these are uh, fundamental verses that are incredibly helpful, easy to memorize, and incredibly helpful in sharing the gospel. If you have some of these already in your tool belt, you've memorized them along the way, um, or you have the bandwidth to memorize uh, all 20 verses this summer, then we would encourage you to also memorize the 201 verses, the second set. All right, and they correspond. So you'll see that this week's verses, the, the 101 verse, oddly numbered 11, um, says uh, on mine, I don't know how it's numbered on yours, but wait, print it off on mine. I apologize. Um, is from uh, Isaiah 6.3. This was the verse we had for our Sunday night devotion this last week. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So that would be the first verse we would want you to, to try to memorize this week. And if you have that one already memorized and or you have the bandwidth to memorize a second, we would want you to memorize the one from the 201 list. Worthy are you, O Lord, our God and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created from Revelation 4.11. So this week we would want you to memorize the first verse from 101 and the first verse from 201 if you have the bandwidth to do two. And I would really encourage you guys that most of us have the bandwidth to memorize one, and most of us have the, actually have the bandwidth to memorize two verses a week. Um, some of you say, I'm, I'm terrible at scripture memory. Uh, I, I'm terrible at memorizing things. Well, if we're honest with ourselves, we memorize lots more than we, uh, than we think. We, depending on what your favorite things are, I could maybe ask you, like, who number 63 is for the Razorbacks this last year? And surprisingly, some of you might be able to tell me uh, who wore that jersey number this year. Or I can tell you, ask you to memorize, uh, maybe, maybe it's digits for you, maybe it's people's names or your children's birthdays or all kinds of different things that we memorize because we find them to be important. And we figure out ways to memorize them. And I would just encourage you to, to figure out ways uh, to memorize God's word. And there are lots of different ways to do that. And one of the ways we want to encourage you and enable you to do that is that um, the, the Summers, Wayne and Mildred Summers, if you guys don't know them, they're incredible saints here in our church and they have memorized hundreds if not thousands of scriptures over the years and they have developed this ingenious scripture memory system and so they have uh, how it works is that you have these cards um, and they get, here are the instructions in the cards how, how to make them work all right 
And so you simply have your verse here printed out, or better yet, handwritten on a card. And you're going to just uh, take it out each morning. It's a real passive, long-term way to memorize Scripture. Now, this won't help you cram this week to get your two verses memorized for this week. But if you implement this kind of system at the end of the 10 weeks, I promise you'll have all of these verses locked in incredibly well. And if you stick with it, it's really, really neat. So how, how it works is you simply just read the verse to yourself out loud. Worthy are you, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. That's it. Just read it once that morning. Then what you're going to do is you're going to mark off on the back that you read it today. And then, here's the trick of it. You're going to do that every day for seven days a week for seven weeks. So just simply read it every day. So you read it, you mark it, you put it to the back of the stack, and you do it with the next one. Then, after seven weeks, you start to do it once a week for six months. So then you put it in a separate stack. And the, all the instructions are in here how to do this. You put that verse in a separate stack. And then on Sunday, if this is your Sunday verses, you go through all of your daily verses. And then you pull out your Sunday verses. And you read it once a week, every week, for six months. And then there's a way to, to include that yearly. And the two of them have incredible scripture memory over decades of doing this and it has uh fit these firmly into their hearts and so uh they have graciously printed these for you guys and so we'll have in the back you guys can pick out you can pick uh both sets there's a there's a a, a 201 and a uh and a 101 set and they come with handy little uh card holders and so this week, take your, you can do all of them each day. Just go through all of them or focus on just those two verses um, for this week. But you guys can pick those up on the way out. But, but practice those. You may have other ways that you've learned to memorize Scripture. So I, 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 I like to write out Scripture uh, freehand. There's something about the way it goes like through your eyes and into your brain and down your arm and into your hand and onto the piece of paper. And then back through again, that cycle somehow uh, buries Scripture in. Um, but whatever it is for you, whether it's cards or repeating it, or there are some great apps on your phone that help with this. So the Fighterverse app is worth $3 for sure. The Scripture Memory app is worth $10 for sure. These are great ways. You can do this collectively in your families, with your children, um, with your spouse. You can do this with partners and roommates, things like that. But we would really, really encourage you to memorize these passages. And as a way to encourage you in that, the next week, We'll take a few minutes during our time to review the verses that you memorized this week and to introduce and remind you what are the verses we're going to memorize next week. All right? Any questions about the scripture memory? Y'all are experts. You got this. Okay. This is, a this is a challenge by choice. You guys can jump in and run with us on this. But we're, we, we hope that this will be really fruitful for you not only in the short term in the evangelism, we hope that you'll have opportunities for this week, but in the long term as you grow as an evangelist. Well, we have just a few minutes. And so what I encourage you is real quick before you, you walk out, if you have to go get kids, you can go. Um, but if you have a second, just take a minute and look at these questions that we've given you here in your small groups and, and just ask um, each other, what is this going to look like? What is your biggest barrier to evangelism? What's going to keep you? I've, I've suggested some things there. And then what are you praying 
Who are you praying for? Who specifically are you praying for? Who is your Bob that you're praying for um, that, uh, that you'd get opportunities for them this week? And then how are you guys going to memorize those passages? If you get a chance, talk through those. And then uh, you can do that now or you can do that after the session. You can do that at lunch today, whatever, wherever, whenever it is convenient for you. But I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to be dismissed. Lord Jesus, it is humbling today to look at how you have created all things, how you created us to be in union with you, and then how we ran from that, and yet you have continued mercifully, graciously, sovereignly to tell us the good news of, this, of your son, Jesus Christ. We pray. We pray that we would love that message and love to share it. We pray that this week that you would use these passages that as we hide them in our hearts, Lord, that we would marvel again at the good news of the gospel and that they would quickly uh, spring to mind and spring to our lips and give them the opportunity to share them with others. Lord, we pray that through this class that we would be emboldened uh, to share the good news and Lord, that many would hear that good news and they would turn and trust in you. We pray that would be be true to the ends of the earth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. You guys have a few minutes to sit and discuss in here, and then in just a few minutes it will be time to head down to the main hall.